Good morning. Hey everyone, my name is Cale Freeman. I serve as one of the pastors here at this church, and it's uh, my honor and uh, privilege to get to open the Word of God with you guys today. So uh, I'm going to pray for you guys. If you would please pray for me, and then we'll get started. Father, we uh, come before you as uh, people who are longing and waiting for you. Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to every single person here, myself included, or that you reveal yourself in your scriptures, in your word, that you reveal yourself in uh, the, the hearts and minds of every individual here as well. That you speak to us clearly, that we would see you clearly, that we would be able to love you in a way that we've never done before. Amen. Amen. Well, back in 1942, there was a plane that went into the North Sea. If you don't know where that's at, it's quite far away from here. It's uh, northeast of uh, England. It's around a lot of other European countries over there. Um, if you couldn't guess, this is during World War II, and that plane was a British bomber. Uh, it was over in Norway doing what bombers do and had a lot of enemy fire. And on the way back, they're able to get out of Norway, but the plane is not going to make it home, or at least that's what the crew was able to see very clearly at the time. So they had to ditch the plane, which means they had to make an emergency landing onto the water. As they're going down, they're trying to radio their base and tell them, hey, like, this is where we're at. Here's our coordinates. They were not able to do it. And as soon as they hit the water, that's no longer an option. This is before satellite. This is before GPS. And that radio was really the main means of communicating any kind of a hope for rescue. And so here they were in the middle of February, in the winter, cold water, probably looking at a very terrible death. And they say, well, we have one last ditch effort. We have one last hope, and that hope was in a bird. It was in a pigeon, an emergency pigeon. So believe it or not, back in the day, uh, whenever there was no GPS or satellite or anything like that, it was actually standard issue for these bomber planes to have like emergency pigeons for just in case this exact thing happened, okay? You can see a picture right here. There's a pigeon in each one of these boxes, right? And that sounds silly, but you know, World War II around that time, that's whenever like the old world and new technology kind of like uh, had a marriage in, in, many, uh, in many ways. And the idea here was if for no other reason they can get out communication, they can let this pigeon go and it's going to fly home, hopefully, and then somehow they're going to be able to triangulate the distance of the bird and the time they had flown since they crashed. Standard issue, emergency pigeons. <laughs> So just imagine these, these soldiers, these, these air crew, just being like, well, guys, uh, this is probably it, but here goes our last ditch effort, and they just let it go, and it's like, right? And it's like, all right, well, I guess we'll wait. <laughs> so just imagine, though, the waiting, though. Like, every single minute had to feel like an eternity. And they waited, and they waited, and they waited, but of course, eventually, they see their salvation coming. The, the rescue crew actually found them, saved all of them. Um, the pigeon had flown 120 miles to its original owner, and then the owner knew what that meant, so they were able to find them. And within 15 minutes of looking for them, they found them. So, super successful. Um, they stuffed this pigeon, by the way. It's in a museum somewhere. You can go see it. Um, <laughs> And, but before that, and I assume that it died of natural causes, but, um, but in addition to that, I haven't thought about that, 
But in addition to that, they also gave it like a medal of honor and, or whatever the equivalent there is for animals in the service. But this is, a, this is a really triumphal story whenever we tell it all the way through. However, if we kind of stop just right after they let the pigeon go and then we just kind of stop in the waiting, it, it doesn't sound very good. It doesn't sound like there's going to be really any hope for them because even though they all had these like standard issue emergency pigeons, as silly as that is, um, at the end of the day, this was like, this is a long shot. And so they waited with probably little to no hope, wait, waiting and hoping against all odds. And of course, you and I know exactly what that's like to wait against all odds, to wait for something really good, to wait for something maybe really terrible. The worst is whenever you're waiting for something and it could turn out one way or the other, terrible or really great. We've all had that friend or family member that's been in the hospital and just continues to decline, but we just keep thinking, despite all of the evidence to the contrary, I'm going to hope that things get better tomorrow. Many of us have that uh, adult child who may have been a little hard to bring up in the world, but now that they're an adult, they're just absolutely ruining their lives, and you just keep hoping every single time something happens, like maybe this will be the one where they turn their lives around. You see, no matter what it is, we can all point to things where we're waiting and we're hoping that things will change against all odds. But this is a specific hope that is only found in the context of this present world and of this present culture, or really the cultures of the whole world. It's this idea of against all odds hoping. It's really just wishful thinking, really just like an emotional response of like, I just don't want to feel so bad for so long, so I'm just going to feel good. Now, if you do that, that's not bad, necessarily. But is that the only thing that we have in Christ? Is this the only hope that we have? Is this the hope that we're celebrating in Advent? And what Paul is going to tell us today is that we have a much greater hope. So on this first day of Advent, what we're going to be talking about is hope, the object of our hope, the assurance of our hope, the need for our hope. If you're new to church or, or new around here, you may not know a whole lot about Advent, but maybe you've heard about it just a little bit here. Um, Advent is a word that means the arrival or the coming of something or someone, and we use it in two different ways. Uh, first of all, we have like the season of Advent, which we're starting today. It's on our calendars. It's reoccurring. But then we also have two specific events that we look to, and we call those Advents or arrivals as well. Now, those two advents, those two arrivals, the first one is what we celebrate at Christmas. And that is the first arrival of Christ to the world where God the Son took on flesh and started his work of redemption in the world. Now, the second advent, though, is whenever uh, we look to in the future, the one day where Christ is going to arrive again on the earth and he's going to return. That is the second advent. Now, we celebrate the season of Advent every single year, and it leads up to Christmas, but what you might not know is that throughout history, even though there's a very strong, long history of over a thousand years of Christians uh, observing Advent, the vast majority of the time, in fact, the entire time, up until the last couple hundred years, we actually weren't putting the emphasis on the first arrival or the first Advent. We were putting it on the second you see, in the 4th or 5th century, we get the first documentation where we see anyone actually having any kind of Advent celebration or Advent observance. And at that time, it had nothing to do with Christmas. 
it had everything to do with the second arrival or the second advent. Now, by the 7th or 8th century, there was certainly an advent Christmas connection, and there has been since then. Don't get me wrong, like, it, advent does end with Christmas, but it's actually historically been looking at one eye, the first advent, and with the other eye, maybe even the greater eye on the second. So this year, as a church, we're going to be pushing into this advent season, in such a way that we're going to be anticipating Christmas on our calendars, but we're also going to be anticipating the return of Christ. We're going to be looking at scriptures that speak to these things. So if you have like Advent calendars and stuff, like I'm not asking you to throw those away. Those are really good. Those are delicious. You should, you should use those. Uh, but we are going to look a little bit more at um, what Christians have done for the majority of church history. So if you're not already there, open up to Romans 8, verses 18 through 25. Today, from the Word of God, here's what we're going to hear. We're going to hear about suffering, and then we're going to hear about glory, and then we're going to hear about hope. Let's begin by reading verse 18. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The first thing I want you guys to see in this text today is that we suffer in the present age. We suffer in the present age. The person who's writing this is the Apostle Paul. He's the one who wrote 1 Corinthians, which we've been in the last couple of months. But here he's writing to a different church, a church in Rome. This guy knows something about suffering. Uh, You can look up information on his life. I mean, the guy just went through so many hard things. Eventually he's going to die by being beheaded for his faith in Christ. He knows about suffering. And he says, hey, listen, I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing, and he keeps going on. But what suffering is he talking about here? He's not talking just about suffering as he himself as an apostle, although that was great. And he wasn't talking about the suffering just that was to come to uh, Christians in the coming years, though that was also great. He's talking about the suffering that happens in this present time or in this present age. It's the suffering that is common to everyone in his day and also common to all of us in this room. The idea of suffering being things like stomach bugs and sickness. The idea of suffering being death and sorrow. These are the kinds of sufferings that he's talking about. But let's skip verse 19. Let's go now to verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. He talks about groaning. He talks about uh, being subjected to futility. He talks about how the creation was under bondage to corruption. What he's doing is he's referring back to the first couple of stories of the Bible in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Whenever a good God created a very good world and he put man and woman in that world and he gave them a job to do, to fill the earth and subdue it. It was a good job without any toil. There was no suffering of any kind at this time. And he gave them all kinds of things that they could do and only one thing that they could not do and they promptly decided to rebel against him and do that thing. He said, hey, listen, don't, you can eat of any tree in the garden but just not that one and then effectively they said, okay, I'm going to do that. And so they rebelled. And whenever they rebelled, all of creation broke. 
God cursed them. God cursed the, uh, the creation. And all of a sudden, instead of joy and abundance, there was now suffering, pain, and death. There were thorns and thistles. The, the very creation that they were actually put there to rule and co-rule with God was now going to return the favor and rebel against them. And now it just wants to hurt them and kill them. This is what he's talking about here whenever it's talking about uh, creation groaning and being subjected to futility. And so we also groan. Because even though that, that way in which the world broke and the suffering that they suffered, it's gone from generation to generation until here it is with you and I. But there's something else that was passed down. And it was this idea and this feeling that things aren't the way that they were supposed to be. We see bad things in the world, we're like, wow, that, how on earth could that happen? And really the subtext of that is, well, therefore, that should not happen. We all have this sense about us. But what's crazy is that this is the world that Christ came to in the first advent and the first arrival. Even though it was a creation that was full of suffering and pain, Jesus left the comfort of heaven to be born of a virgin and born both God and man, and that is what we celebrate at Christmas. He came to this place that we all know so, so well to being so full of suffering. And the people that rebelled against him are the people that he came for. And he didn't just come to preach, and he didn't just come to do miracles, though of course he did all these things. He ultimately came to suffer in this world that's so full of suffering. And yeah, he had probably lower back pain from time to time like you and me. And occasionally I'm sure he got like some kind of a sinus infection here and there. But ultimately he came to suffer on the cross to take all the punishment of all the sin and all the rebellion that had ever been in the world and ever will be in the world and he put it on himself. My dad was um, born in 1946, which is pretty crazy. He's a lot older than all of my other friends, uh, than, than, their, than their parents were anyway. And uh, he had a really great life. He had a really great childhood. Um, this is him right here. Pretty cool childhood, huh? Yeah, pretty great. Uh, but you know, his uh, childhood was uh, really marked by one thing, though, which is that he couldn't see very well. And he couldn't get glasses for a very long time. I don't know if it was like a money thing or what. I mean, it was like right out of the Great Depression, practically, and right out of World War II when he was born. But he finally got a pair of glasses in like the seventh or eighth grade. And this guy was blind. I mean, like right here is about where he had good vision. And he used to tell me about the first time that he drove home from getting glasses, and he was just astounded. He's like, you can see the bricks on the buildings. <laughs> He's like, you can see the mortar between it from the car, <laughs> you know? He's like, you, like, you don't have to like, pick a leaf off of a tree. Like, you, can, you can see them. The guy had never even seen a bird in the sky. But the thing is, is, as soon as he takes those glasses off, all of a sudden there's this unshakable feeling that, no, 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 this is not how it's supposed to be. I know how it's supposed to be now. I have a sense about that. So what is not as it is supposed to be in your life? What do you see that isn't quite yet what it should be? What's making you groan? Is middle age catching up to you? You go out and play pickleball, you got to put that knee brace on. <laughs> got to get that ice pack afterwards. And it's silly, but it's like, hey, that's just evidence. Like Things are getting worse rather than better. <laughs> and for some of us, we know that the world is not the way it's supposed to be because there are some people who are no longer in it. 
And we love those people and we say, no, no, no. Aren't people supposed to never go away? Isn't that the feeling that we all have when we lose someone? It doesn't matter if this is the best year of your life or the worst. We all have something that we can point to and say, no, 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 things ought not be that way. And that is a feeling that we've had since the garden. Let's now read verse 23. Continue on to the second thing I want you guys to see today. It says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Second thing I want you guys to see today is that while we suffer in this present age, we will have glory in the age to come. We have glory in the age to come. Back in verse 18, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So what is the glory? It's in the future. It's to be revealed to us. What is it? If we go all the way back down to verse 23, the glory that we are looking towards in the future is the redemption of the bodies. Now, you might be like reading through this the first time and be like, okay, how do we get there? Let me, let me show you. Let me help you. Back in verse 18, it says uh, that there is glory that is to be revealed. So we have glory and we have reveal. And then in verse 19, we have a revealing again, but this time it's of the sons of God. And then down here in verse 23, we see that we're waiting eagerly for adoption as Sons, it's all coming together and it finally gets to this very last line, which let me help you out here a little bit. This might be just a little bit more information than you want, but it's good. That little comma there in verse 23, and then it says the redemption of our bodies and it doesn't have a verb there, not every time, but what it's doing there and so often in the scriptures, it's saying, hey, that which came before that comma, it's the same thing. So it's all pointing to the redemption of the bodies. This is the glory that is to come in the next age. You see, what we believe as Christians is that uh, whenever Jesus died in real history and whenever he rose again in real history, he rose again with what is called a glorified body. He was just as much God and man before his death and resurrection as he was after, and yet his flesh was now glorified, which means that it no longer had any kind of suffering, pain, or bondage to death in it whatsoever. It was as it was always supposed to be. And what we believe as Christians is that whenever we have that redemption of the body, it will be the very same way. We will have bodies in the resurrection. We won't just be floating in some kind of weird spirit world or something like that. We will be on this earth and we will have our bodies and yet they will be glorified bodies where sin and pain and sadness will have no stronghold in us. We will one day be like Christ. And this is that revealing of the sons that it talks about in verse 19. It says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, we're sons of God if we believe in Jesus. And by the way, this isn't just like a male thing. It is a female thing. He's using um, kind of like royal heir language. At the time, that would have been a male. So uh, if you believe in Christ, be you a man or a woman, like we're, we're all being viewed here as sons uh, in this metaphor. And even though we're all sons of God, it's saying that one day there's going to be a revealing of the sons of God. Well, we're already sons, but we're not yet seen that way. If you just look at someone walking down the street, you're not going to be like, there's a son of God right there. Someone might have like a cross necklace on, you might guess, <laughs> you know, but, but you're not going to actually be able to see it. And yet one day you will. In uh, Disney's uh, Beauty and the Beast, 
Um, we, we have this story about a protagonist, Belle, who finds this enchanted castle. Whenever she gets there, there's all kinds of like furniture and dishware, and it's alive, which is like terrifying if you think about it. Well, I mean, it was to, to, to them when they got there. Uh, but, you know, um, whenever they get there, they think like, oh, that's so weird. These things must be enchanted to be like people. But what you find out later on in the narrative is that actually they were people that were changed into forks and knives and dining room sets. And they still re- resembled themselves just a little bit, and yet they were limited in their capacity and what they were able to do. And by the very end of the story, there's this grand revealing The castle goes back to the way it originally was, and all of a sudden the people are changed back to the form that they were always supposed to be. They were revealed. You could definitely tell, like, okay, which one was the clock? Definitely that guy. There was resemblances, and yet they were revealed for the way that they always were supposed to be. Now, that's like a really simple picture a really silly picture in many ways. It's, it, it, it doesn't do the full justice, and yet it's not untrue. That is the revealing that's gonna happen. We will recognize one another, and you will be you, and yet you will be in the form that you were always supposed to be in Christ. So where is your home? Where are you making your home? So many of us in here live in Edmond. This is kind of like where you go to settle down, Right? Some of us live in Guthrie and Luther and Amen there too. But are you trying to settle down as if you're going to be here forever? I mean, some of us have really nice homes and really nice things. There's certainly nothing wrong with nice homes or nice things. I like those things too. And yet sometimes we kind of veer off in the uh, crosshairs of our heart and we start getting our, uh, our, our aim on things that are not ultimately eternal. And we start filling our homes with all kinds of things as if we're going to be here forever thing is, for most of us, by the time we pay off that mortgage payment, we're going to die like 10 or 20 years after that. We're not going to be here forever. We're just not. But sometimes we all end up acting like we are. So where are you making your home and where are you trying to settle down in this age of suffering and disappointment or in the next? But now that you guys have heard that there's suffering in this age and that there's glory in the next to come, And I want to focus our gaze on the hope that's in this passage. For we are to hope in the resurrection. Verse 8, 18, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul is not saying that our sufferings are nothing because of what is to come. He's not saying, hey, I hear that you're suffering right now. No big deal. Just wait. He's saying, no, no, no. I know something about suffering. I've suffered. I'm calling it suffering, but he's saying, hey, by the way, it's not to be compared with what is to come in the next life. I know some of your stories in this room. I know you've been through a great deal of suffering. He's not at all trivializing that. Instead, he's saying, no matter how great the weight of your suffering in your life and the things that have been done to you, it is not to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in the next life. Some of you guys are dipping your toes in Christianity right now, and you're like, I don't know about all this, but you know, I'm kind of liking it right now. I'm mainly just bringing my kids here because I don't want them to be as messed up as me. seems like a good plan. And, and that's the way a lot of us actually get here, by the way. Not a terrible plan. But if that's the only plan that you have, my friends, then you're missing everything. And you have to wonder, man, 
It's not just that I want a little bit of Jesus, it's that Jesus wants all of me. Is this all even worth it? And in this passage, we see, yes, it's 100% worth it because the sufferings of this life are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Verse 24. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. It is not just that we hope in the first advent, the first arrival of Jesus, and say, I hope that's true. Certainly, of course we do, but if we believe in Jesus, we're saying, I believe and I know that that is true, and I now hope in what is to come in the resurrection. You see, our culture, our society, their hopes are all limited, And at best, we're just saying, hey, wishful thinking in a bad situation, if it works out, we'll make a movie about it. But this is not the hope that you and I have. We have hope that is rooted in a promise that's unbreakable from the God of the universe. And we can already see that he's done it before. The entire Old Testament is talking about the promise that there's going to be an arrival of the Christ. And so it happened. And the whole life of Christ, he's going through, he's preaching, he's doing all these things. He starts telling everyone, I'm going to die intentionally. I'm going to rise from the dead. And so he did. And now he's saying, hey, I'm going to come back one day and bring the redemption of the bodies of everyone who has believed in me. And so we can actually have hope in a promise that is unbreaking from the great promise giver who's never broken a promise before. So we can actually put our hope in that. So we have to hope in the return of Christ this Christmas season. Hope in the return of Christ. Hope in the resurrection. We can do this in at least two ways. First of all, by placing Christ's work of the resurrection as the object of our hope. I said earlier, maybe our crosshairs of our heart have got something else in the sights. This happens to each of us whenever we're not looking at Christ. We get other things in place of where he should be, and we start living for this life rather than the next. But the Apostle Paul tells us in another letter, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be pitied. My friends, if the only thing that you're trusting in Christ for is that he will make your life better now and that hopefully it will all pan out after you die, I mean, I have to die anyway, so I might as well hope that things will get better afterwards. If that's the only thing that you have, you are of most people to be pitied according to the Apostle Paul. And yet the invitation is saying, hey, instead of that, why don't you put the hope of your life and the hope of everything you have in the salvation that is coming in the redemption of the bodies and the promise of Christ? Some of you might be in here and like not really believe all this stuff and like I'm, I'm honored that you are here today. And I think you're probably able to say amen, maybe even for the first time today, to like, yeah, there's suffering in the world. Like all of us can see that. And yet you have no hope. I'm not trying to rag on you or anything. I'm just saying like, hey, I've been there too. That's because the only hope that we have without Christ is hope that is rooted in this life only and everything in this life breaks or lets us down. 
And the invitation to Christ right now is for you to see that there is a hope that is offered to you that is unbreaking and unshakable, and it is greater than anything you've ever experienced in this life, so much so that it's beyond compare. The second thing that we can do to hope in the return of Christ this Christmas season is by sharing your hope with others. And sharing it with boldness. See, there's, uh, there's not a whole lot of information in the Bible about why Jesus has not returned yet. We don't get a lot of information about that. Uh, which is funny because there's so many books that are written theorizing about it, but at the end of the day, they just have to say, yeah, we really don't know. <laughs> but there are a couple of things. And here's one of them in 2 Peter 3, 9. It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise in the context, his promise is his second arrival, his second advent. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. One of the only reasons why we're given why Jesus has not come back yet is because he wants even more people to believe in him and be with him forever and ever in the second advent and in the resurrection. He wants to redeem and restore even more people in that day. And that is one of the only reasons why he's sitting around waiting that he gives us. Don't you want to be a part of that? It's certainly what we are commanded to do, but don't you want to be a part of that? There's many things that keep us from sharing our faith and our hope with others. Fear of lack of knowledge. Fear of rejection or a changing of the relationship. Fear of humiliation. I can't answer every one of those in their fullness, and there's a whole lot of other reasons too. Let me just say a few things. Fear of a lack of knowledge. Um, Jesus Christ is the most um, just... Jesus Christ is the greatest person to have ever walked the earth. He has changed more things in the earth than any other man, and people agree with that whether you're a Christian or not. People have been talking about him and arguing about him for 2,000 years. That's a 2,000-year conversation. You're never going to know the answer to every question that has been raised about him for the last 2,000 years. You're not even going to know the majority of them if you're able to list them. But he doesn't ask you to know every answer to every question. He asks you to share your hope. So that's what he's calling us to this Christmas. Rejection, fear that your relationship will change. Uh, I, I get that. I feel that too. But let's just reframe that for a second. If you're afraid that a relationship is going to change, you probably love and care for that person quite a lot. That probably means that that is the exact person that God is calling you to actually share your hope with this Christmas season. I'm not saying it in shame. I'm just saying like, hey, if you don't want to lose that relationship, that's exactly the kind of person that you should share your hope with because you love them and you care for them. Humiliation, um, you know, the scriptures are very clear. Yeah, you're gonna be made fun of. Maybe not every time, but if you do this enough, you're going to be humiliated, you're gonna be made fun of. And that might hurt, but you cannot consider the sufferings of this present time as worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to you. 
If you want to celebrate Christmas this year the right way, the way it's supposed to be celebrated, not in a cultural context, share your hope in Christ for your life, for this life and the next, with your loved ones, your friends, your colleagues, and your children. Let's pray. Father God, you're good to us. You sent your son to us once and he will come again. And for that, Lord, we have hope. We have hope during our sufferings. We have hope in this life because we know that we have hope in the next. But we pray that you would meet each of us in that reality and call us into obedience for you, call us into hope in you and call us into loving you more and more and sharing that with others. Amen.